My name is Mason Yearly, and I'm the student ministry director here, and um, I have the awesome, amazing privilege and opportunity to bring the word this morning. So throughout my college years, I worked in the admissions department at Moody Bible Institute, where I went to school, and so I was in charge of taking weekends here and there to go, and, and I would go to different schools or different retreats that were happening, and I would talk about all the different information that Moody had to offer and try to convince or... Um, share why people should attend school at Moody. And one of my favorite things that I got to do with this job was uh, go on campus tours, right? This was an awesome opportunity for me to connect with a new family each time, to share all the information. Um, I was a stereotypical person where, you know, you're walking backwards, like, hey, come follow me, and everyone's, you know, trying to gather around, I'm trying to yell all the information, and um, I just love to share all the intricate parts of what made my special uh, time at, at Moody so great. And uh, there was always this somber part of the tour where right in front of the giant auditorium where we'd go and have chapel and listen to different speakers, and there was this massive wall just full of names uh, over the 130 years of ministry at Moody, um, all the different graduates who've gone on into the mission field. And right next to 21 different names was a little asterisk, right? And this signified um, 21 Moody graduates who had gone on into the mission field and were martyred for their faith uh, in their service to the Lord. And I always admired the ways in which Moody remembered these individuals and really honored their sacrifice in boldly proclaiming Christ in their mission context. And along these lines, D.L. Moody was once asked if he felt like he would ever be able to endure a martyr's death, to which he responded that in that moment he believed that God would grant him a martyr's grace. Those powerful words show the cost of following Christ. And as I would read about the lives of these individuals, and just, um, just take a pause at this point in the tour to just really reflect on what these individuals stand for. It always just impressed me. It always um, made me think and, and consider what they were going through in those moments of, of different types of torture or uh, a, long, a lot of times just really emotional moments of, of family members being killed with them or friends. Yet in spite of the cost that these believers paid, that the Lord willing, we would never have to experience. They also serve as an, as an incredible reminder of what it means to have a faith that stood firm in the midst of challenging circumstances that didn't waver, even if their lives depended on it. You know, as our theme for the year has been stand firm, I felt a particular draw towards this passage in Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, because we all feel times where our faith is shaken, where it's maybe hard to trust, as today is the last day of 2023, and as I look out, I know that there have been some individuals in this year who have experienced new levels of God's grace and blessing this year. There are also those of you that have experienced devastating loss and grief in this last year. And regardless of where you sit this morning, and regardless of what 2024 will hold for us, we can look to the example of these Jewish believers that we'll read about in our passage this morning. And they experienced some challenges that shook their faith as well. And the author of Hebrews paints this picture of what it looks like to, to stand firm in Christ with an unwavering faith. So if you need a Bible, feel free to grab one of the hardback Bibles around the seats around you so you're able to follow along with us as we continue in worship through the reading of God's Word. So join me in Hebrews 10, 19-25 if you're not already there. And today we'll see that I can experience unwavering faith when I trust in Christ. 
I can experience unwavering faith when I trust in Christ. So for some context into where we've been, which leads us into our passage this morning, we do, we do not know who the author of Hebrews is. There's no name that is given, uh, typical like the other epistles or the letters where they say, hi, I'm Paul, you know, um, I'm writing to you, right? We don't necessarily have that for Hebrews, right? We, um, there's all kinds of different debate over who is writing. Uh, it could be Paul, it could be someone else like Barnabas or Apollos. But regardless, we do know quite a bit about the audience that the author is writing to. We know that this is a group of, of former Jews who had put their faith and trust in Christ. We know two things in particular about this particular group. We know that this was uh, a group that was experiencing persecution of different kinds. In fact, if you just scroll just a little bit past where we're going to be today in Hebrews 10, 32 through 34, um, pulling straight from the text, we see that they had to endure things like being publicly exposed or um, to a reproach and affliction. Or they were publicly being brought to shame. Uh, some were being imprisoned for their faith. Uh, people were destroying their property. Right, so this was a group of believers that were deeply hurt, right? As a result of all this persecution and all these challenges of, of pursuing Christ, right, they also questioned the legitimacy of who Jesus was. Right, the author spends the majority of the book talking about how Jesus was greater and bringing in arguments like how Jesus was greater than the angels in Hebrews 2, how he's greater than the prophets, specifically Moses in Hebrews 3, how Jesus is the great high priest, Hebrews 4, and ultimately how Jesus' covenant is greater and true in Hebrews 8, and that it is through his sacrifice that we can experience the forgiveness of sins and not in the blood of bulls and goats, Hebrews 10, verse 4. Right, so as a result of their pain, they struggled to see Jesus as their Savior, they were tempted to revert back to Judaism and completely just ditch the teachings of Christ to reject him altogether. So the author has been building up this massive argument throughout the entire book. It leads us to our passage this morning. And we'll see three different let us commands as a result of these truths. And so for our first point this morning, unwavering faith is established by drawing near with full assurance. Unwavering faith is established by drawing near with full assurance. Look with me in Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So right away, we see that the author reminds his audience that they have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, which opened the curtain through his flesh, and because Jesus is our great priest. All right, those are three massive points, right? There's a ton of Old Testament imagery here. And to really give us a picture of what the author is talking about, um, I found a helpful diagram for us to kind of uh, look at as we guide through, help us guide through this passage, right? And so... Um, the first thing, right, so he says, uh, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. All right, so remember that in the Old Testament, only a Levite priest was able to enter into what was called the Holy of Holies. And you see that right there on the right. And the Holy of Holies, right, it contained the Ark of the Covenant, right? It functioned as a means to contain God's presence with the people. Right, so only a priest could go in and mediate on behalf of the people and meet with God in this unique 
way. And then he also mentioned that uh, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, right? So right next to that, um, you see the curtain right next to it. See the little, little arrow there. Right, the, the curtain was the barrier that shut off the Holy of Holies from the, where only the Levite priest could go, and it shut that off from the rest of the people. Right, only the priest could go into this place to meet with God in this unique way. So therefore, the author is drawing upon this imagery to show that because Christ is our great high priest, right, because he proved to be who he said he was by dying on the cross, rising again from the dead, he has opened the curtains so that we would be able to experience a personal relationship with the God of the universe. Right? God's presence is no longer just for specific individuals in the Levite priests or even just for the Jewish people specifically. But no, it's for all people who call on Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So when we have a relationship with Christ because we know these things to be true of Christ, going back to how the author starts, because we know these things to be true, we can have confidence to enter the holy places. Man, can you imagine what these believers were feeling when they're hearing this? Like in the time that this was written and the audience that would have received this, these words had to have been deeply impactful. Like, you mean to tell me that Jesus is who he said he was? Right, like the animal sacrifices that I've been bringing and how I was raised and, and going to the temple... Right, not only is Jesus my great priest, but he's also my sacrificial lamb who wipes me clean from my sin. That had to have been so relieving, right? And in this culture of, of works and doing the law perfectly, of all this uncertainty with whether or not the, the animal sacrifices actually forgave them of their sins. And there had to have been so much peace in recognizing who Jesus was and recognizing that his sacrifice truly does cover their sin. So knowing these things to be true of Christ, the author gives us three let us commands. Right? Because we have confidence to enter the holy places, because he has opened the curtain for us through his flesh, because we have a great priest over the house of God, look with me again in verse 22. It says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Right? The first command is to draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, right? To pursue him in a personal relationship, right? And doing so actively and regularly, right? Because we have this confidence to enter God's presence and know these things to be true of Christ in our relationship with him, we can then pursue him with a true heart and full assurance of faith. This phrasing reveals a heart that is ready to obey in full sincerity to God with a confidence that is rooted in his faithfulness to his promises and a reliance on his strength where sustenance is necessary in that obedience. So as an overflow of the life and blessing that we have received through Jesus Christ, we can now experience victory over sin and have a full assurance, right? This complete certainty of who Jesus is. Not only does this confidence in Christ bring about obedience and a full assurance of faith, but it also shows a purification of the mind and the heart, right? Not only do we draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, but it says, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Notice those verbs sprinkled and, and washed, right? They are in the perfect tense, right? They show that Christ's sanctifying work has already been accomplished 
in the form of personal transformation rather than this ongoing ritual that had to be continued through the Old Testament as a means to forgive sin with the animal sacrifices. That once was dead has now been made alive. What was dirty from sin has been cleansed. But not only has this happened the moment that believers place their trust in Christ for salvation, but also that this work is ongoing and it's going to continue. Right? We don't come to Christ and say, sweet, I'm all done, I'm all cleaned up. No, because we're sinful, we have to continually be washed clean through the blood of Christ. We, we must regularly and daily come to Christ and allow the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit take place in our minds and in our hearts. So for those of you who didn't know, uh, in my, my first job in high school, which carried me into my early college years, was working at a Chick-fil-A in my hometown. And one of my favorite times of the year was our staff Christmas party. And the, my favorite part was because we all got to be in the restaurant on a Sunday. We were all not working, right? And so we got to just enjoy, like, the restaurant to ourselves, and it was awesome. I loved it, right? It was like your standard Christmas party, right? We had our gift exchanges and our uh, catered food and, you know, just time together as a staff to just enjoy time together. The only problem was that all of the staff's cars took up all the parking spaces in the parking lot. And so people were like, oh man, Chick-fil-A's open. Like, I should probably go see if they're open if I can get myself a Chick-fil-A sandwich. Well, of course, they would just kind of sit in the drive-thru for minutes on end, just like, all right, we probably should go tell them, like, hey, we're closed. Like, we're having our Christmas party. And, you know, you can only imagine the, the level of disappointment, um, even different parts of anger that were coming out. It's like, man, you guys look like you're open. What are you doing? Parking in the parking space. Have a sign out. It's like, you know, we had to just go tell them that, um, that we were closed. And, and I laugh at it now because I have definitely said this. I know people have told me, man, the only time I want Chick-fil-A is when they're closed on Sunday. Right? You all feel that. And I'm sorry. I apologize in advance. It is Sunday, so you can't go have Chick-fil-A. I'm making you hungry. I apologize for that. But Monday rolls around, and man, it's go time, right? The, the second that Chick-fil-A is open, you swing those doors wide open, you get full access to God's, uh, to, to God's just glorious chicken sandwich, and it's amazing. You have all of it that you want. You know, in the same way, our sin separates us from God, right? We were totally closed off from accessing his presence. The Levite priests, right, they were the only ones who had total access to God's presence, and they got to experience this unique relationship with God in the Old Testament. Because Christ is our great priest, who opened the curtain through his death and resurrection, for us who are on the outside, right, we can now have a personal relationship with Christ and experience the fullness of God's presence through the Holy Spirit. Man, that is our hope. So question for you this morning, am I drawing near to God? Am I drawing near to God? Have you put your faith and trust in Christ this morning? If not, we have the hope of the gospel. Right? You can be forgiven of your sin and experience the fullness of a relationship with God. For those of you who have made that decision, are you drawing near regularly? Is there an area of your life where you've grown complacent? Maybe you need to come before the Lord in repentance, or maybe it's just taking steps to spend time with God daily. Um, you know, even a lot of us, I'm sure, are making New Year's resolutions. Like, what do I need to go after this next year? How can I spend time with God consistently? Unwavering faith is established by drawing near with full assurance. That's point number one. 
Point number two, unwavering faith is strengthened by holding fast to the confession of our hope. Unwavering faith is strengthened by holding fast to the confession of our hope. Look with me in verse 23. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Right, so the second command, right? The first one, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. The second, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Like, if we are truly to have an assurance of faith, we have to hold fast. And I love this picture, this image of holding fast. It's this idea of remaining steady in full pursuit, right? Running hard after the Lord. So with this assurance of faith, what are we to hold on to? It's this confession of our hope, right? When we recognize who Jesus is, when we cling to him with our lives, right? When we trust him in full certainty and full assurance, right? Now we can hold fast to this hope that we have in him. We have to remember that these believers were on shaky ground, right? They were on the verge of losing their faith in Christ completely, right? They're questioning the authenticity of who he was. They were tempted to go back to Judaism. But these believers needed certainty on who Jesus was. And by knowing Christ's trustworthiness, they can look to him as their priest who gives them certainty through his death and resurrection. So holding fast to this hope firmly is what strengthens that complete assurance of faith we talked about in verse 22. And they're to do so without wavering. This phrase, without wavering, it's so important because it shows a consistency in that pursuit. To hold fast despite what is thrown our way. Because, man, if we really think about it, there is absolutely nothing in our lives that is consistent and without change ever. Right? Our jobs change. Our coworkers come and go. Our boss comes and goes. Right? The economy, right? <laughs> Everything changes with that by the day. Relationships change by the season. Our weekly schedules never look the same, right? Parents with kids, I know you feel that one, right? With all the extracurriculars and all the different things happening, weekly schedules are never the same. Even by the day or by the season, our own belief or trust in God can change. Literally everything in our lives wavers in some way. And yet this picture to hold fast to our hope without wavering is so essential because Christ is the only constant that we can firmly put our trust in. We see that in the phrase immediately following, right? For he who promised is faithful, right? The obedience of these believers was not built on their own strength or their ability to keep the law perfectly, but rather it is because he who promised is faithful, right? Our assurance of faith is not rooted in our performance of getting it right, but rather in the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? Our confession of hope is rooted in our assurance of who Jesus is because he is ultimately faithful and trustworthy in the fulfillment of promise of saving us from our sin. All right, this would have struck these Jewish believers differently, right? After generations and generations of longing for this promised Messiah, to now seeing the fulfillment of this promise through Jesus Christ. Right? It's in this certainty that they can hold fast without wavering. You know, back in the days of sailing on wooden ships, uh, there was a phrase that was often used especially when storms were coming their way, that was hold fast and stay true. You see, in a storm, sailors would tell each other to hold fast, right? Because 
uh, they needed to grab onto rigging or something solid and secure that, would, um, that had weathered previous storms in the past to prevent from being swept overboard. Right, so they needed to hold fast. They needed to, to grab something and brace for impact. Then you had stay true. Right? And this was the direction to the man at the helm to stay true to the compass heading to avoid being blown far off course. Right? If you're sailing, you, you never know what kinds of challenges are going to come your way with, between the waves and the strength of the current and the wind. Right? They needed to brace for impact and hold fast, but they also needed to stay true so that they didn't lose progress in their journey. We too must hold fast and stay true on the only firm foundation that we have in our lives, and that is Jesus Christ. We have certainty in our hope in him because he who promised is faithful, and we're to hold fast and stay true by pursuing him with our whole lives without wavering because everything else will fall short. Simple question for you is, what am I placing my hope in? What am I placing my hope in? Again, is it jobs? Is it the economy? Is it money? Is it the government? It will disappoint you. Are you putting your hope in a relationship? Unwavering faith is strengthened by holding fast to the confession of our hope. That's point number two. And point number three, unwavering faith is sustained by stirring up one another. Unwavering faith is sustained by stirring up one another. Look with me again in verse 24. It says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Lastly, the, the author concludes with this final let us command, right? We had uh, to draw near with full assurance of faith. We had to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. And we have this call to stir up one another to love and good works and not neglecting meeting together. Right? The assurance of faith and unwavering confidence that we see in the prior two points should not be experienced solely on an individual level, but should be a communal effort. Right? We know that we absolutely need community to help us in our pursuit of Christ. Because if we're up to us, man, we would struggle. Right? We do struggle. Right? We can't do it on our own. We need other believers to hold us accountable, to encourage us, to point us to Christ. Because on our, on our own, we waver. Right? We can be tempted to muscle it, or to, to do it all on our own strength. And that's exhausting. One way that we can sharpen one another is not uh, neglecting to meet together. Right? Um, he even mentions as is the habit of some. Right? And it's important to note once again that with all the persecution that was happening to these believers for, that they were facing in, in the cause of Christ, right, the author's call was for them to have a mutual concern for one another, right? to progress in their sanctification, to remind each other of this hope that they have in order to persevere against all of these hostilities that they faced in the world. So in the midst of this persecution, the temptation could have been to not participate in the gathering of these believers uh, for fear of the consequences of what that could mean for them. Uh, it, it could be just a general habit of laziness or to not see the significance of meeting or even just having a hesitancy to be all in for Christ. Regardless of what these believers were possibly feeling and facing, the command remains in that in order to pursue Christ with an assurance of faith without wavering, 
meeting together with the body of believers is essential. Right? Community is able to speak life into us in ways that we can't do for ourselves. They're able to hold us to standards in which we would let slip behind closed doors if nobody else was involved. But the reality here is that we need each other to help us and to strengthen us when we're weak. One of my youth leaders in high school, uh, when I was in high school, uh, was um, every time we were talking about community or accountability or really any kind of like communal effort, um, he always, um, being a military guy, always talked about this picture of a battlefield, right? And when one brother goes down, you don't just keep going and move on, right? You have to go back and pick them up. In the same way, when you go down, right, the expectation is that someone else will be picking me up. And this picture has always helped me because if we're honest this morning, we always have moments in our lives when we need to be picked up. And vice versa, when we're going strong, there are people in your circles and in your small groups that also need to be picked up. And you can give life and support in ways that they can't do on their own. So to stir up, to love and good works, to not neglect meeting together. And he concludes in this last portion here. He says, to encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This was indicating that there was some discouragement among these believers and that Jesus had not yet returned, which may have been a significant reason why many of the believers were beginning to doubt whether or not they should stick to the teachings of Christ or revert back to Judaism. You see, when Christ ascended, even the belief among the disciples was that they would see Jesus return in their lifetime, maybe even like for a brief moment. And so in this waiting period, as years have progressed, or this maybe has sparked some doubt over whether Jesus' resurrection was legitimate. Like, is this actually real? Like, he hasn't come back yet. What is going on? So therefore, the author was calling these believers to live in gospel community, to battle against discouragement, and to hold each other accountable and striving after obedience by living out the hope that they had in Christ. This past year, there was this viral story going around Major League Baseball uh, that was revolved around Trey Turner, right? Now, Trey Turner is the shortstop of the Philadelphia Phillies. Right, this is a big deal because he is a super talented player, right? He's known for his speed. He's great with his glove on defense. Um, he can hit the ball in all kinds of different ways. And he just signed this really big contract worth a ton of money to go play for Philadelphia. The only problem was last year in his first year, he was absolutely awful, like so bad. Um, He was making silly errors that he never did in the past. He couldn't get on base. He wasn't coming through in big moments, and his contributions to the team were slim, and it got ugly really quick. So for those of you who aren't sports people, Philadelphia is known for being a brutal place to to play. Um, They're really passionate about their sports teams, and they're not afraid to share their opinions. And so for this really young star shortstop, this was a massive problem for them. And so really where this story kind of picks up is this radio producer in Philadelphia, he put out this tweet after a tough loss. And he says, I know he's making $300 million, so it's unpopular to say that you feel bad for the guy, but I legitimately feel bad for Trey Turner. Post-game interview was a tough watch. He's in the cages until midnight, just think he's lost. Right? He was doing everything in his power to figure out why am I struggling so badly, right? He's watching film. He's working on all the different mechanics on what is going wrong. He's getting booed like every time he goes out there and he's feeling really discouraged. You can just kind of see that in that quote. So after these words were spoken, this radio producer suggested that Philadelphia give him a standing ovation to encourage him. As you can imagine, this was quite the debate, right? 
this passionate fan base is like, encourage him, like, giving a standing ovation. This guy's awful. Like, why would we ever do that? We're paying him all this money. He's awful. Like, we should probably just cut him or trade him because he's not worth what we paid him. Then you have the other side of Philadelphia that's like, yeah, like, let's encourage him. Let's do something different, right? Let's see if it works. So thankfully, this really small portion of people over here listened. And as that following weekend, as Trey Turner was heading to the plate, the miraculous happened, right? The entire stadium erupted in a standing ovation and applause. But it wasn't just for one at bat. No, it was for every single time he came to, plate, came to the plate for the entire weekend. It totally turned his season around. Right, the following night, he hit a three-run home run to give the Phillies the lead to win the game. He began a 10-game hitting streak where he just caught on fire. What wasn't working before finally clicked. He went on to nearly double the amount of home runs that he hit in just this very small, short span of games that he had the entire season prior to that. So Trey responded with a thank you Philly billboard that he purchased in Philadelphia with his picture on it. And it went super viral. Um, he, he was interviewed quite a bit about how he credited the fans and the crowd for turning his season around and playing the way that he did. And as this was going on, this was such a powerful picture of what encouragement from the outside can do. Like many of the believers that the author of Hebrews was writing to, right, we also experienced doubt or even unbelief in our walks with Christ. We, we struggle with wanting to be liked by the peers around us at school or at work. We want to hold opinions that won't be controversial to the culture. We, we, we want to shrink uh, back and not be outspoken about our faith because of the fear of what that could mean for us in our different circles. The author of Hebrews shows us that in order to have a faith that stands firm on the person and work of Jesus Christ, that is without wavering, despite the challenges we face, we also have to have community in our lives that are encouraging us and picking us up when we're weak. So that said, here are three ways that community stirs us up, uh, how it stirs up unwavering faith. The first is love one another. Love one another. 1 John 4, 11 through 12 said, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Right? Because God's love through the gospel has forgiven us of our sin, or we also are called to live out that same love to other people. Right? And when we do that, it says God abides in us. Right? He dwells in us. Right, and his love is perfected in us. Right, that we increasingly grow the capacity to love and receive, and to give and also receive love from other people. So the first is love one another. The second is walk with one another. Walk with one another. I love 1 Thessalonians 2.8. It says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Because you become very dear to us. Right, in this passage, Paul was just specifically talking about the relationship that he had developed with the Thessalonians in ministry, right? How in this particular case, Paul was bringing the gospel to Thessalonica, how it was exploding in this area, how the gospel was spreading and changing lives. He also shared his life with them, right? It was very deep, it was personal, it was intimate, right? So that the unity that we have in the gospel should draw us closer together as we do life together, not only in the good times, but even especially in the bad times. 
This picture of doing life together and sharing our lives with others is so essential. Right? If we aren't willing to share what's going on or how God is working in different ways, right, we're going to remain stagnant in different areas. We're not going to experience the blessing that God has instilled in community in this way. So love one another, walk with one another, and lastly, confess to one another. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Right, confessing our, sin, our sins should, um, to one another should be a regular practice. Right? We must bring sin out into the light because if we don't, it will only stay in the darkness. Right? It will only continue to build and destroy. By just trying to deal with our sin on our own, right, <laughs> it just does not go well. Right? We are going to fail every single time. On the flip side, when we pray for other people and intercede for others, that we ourselves are looking to pray for those who are struggling in their sin. And there's power in those prayers, right? When we look for those in our lives who are struggling. So when we think about all these things, right, when we're doing them, right, our assurance of faith and our holding fast to the confession of our hope is lived out as we do life together, as we stir up one another to love and good works. So the author of Hebrews shows us that I can experience unwavering faith when I trust in Christ. It first begins by first drawing near to Christ with a true heart and full assurance of faith. That we can enter into the holy places in confidence because of who Christ is as our priest. But also as the sacrificial lamb who died for our sins, rose from the grave, and made full access to God's presence possible by opening the curtain through his flesh. Who sprinkles clean our hearts from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We can then hold fast and stay true without wavering because Christ is faithful and trustworthy and in that we can experience assurance in our faith in him. But only by living out the gospel in community, by stirring up one another to love and good works. So as we gear up for 2024, may we encourage one another all the more as the day draws near and hold fast and stay true to our hope in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that we have confidence to enter the holy places, that you opened the curtain for us through your flesh, through your death and resurrection. Thank you that you are our great high priest who intercedes for us in that we can have confidence to have a personal relationship with you with full assurance of faith. May we hold fast to this confession of hope, regardless of what happens in this next year, God, that you would be on the throne in our lives. Thank you for this community. Thank you for this body of believers where we can gather together. We can encourage one another all the more as we long for your return. Help us, we pray.